Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 16, 17, and 18. We're looking at this part of the story of the Exodus where the people of Israel have come out of the Red Sea and God is leading them to the promised land. We've been in the sermon series called Moses, the Reluctant Prophet, and we're trying to tell the entire story of the Exodus in uh, six weeks or so. And it's interesting that uh, our community group directors and I, we chose this series months ago as we were thinking about the kinds of things we wanted to study together as a church and in our community groups. And uh, it was, I think, in the providence of God that, that he led us to this uh, story because it enables us to look at uh, some lessons from the life of Moses, especially as we think about a transition in leadership. Most of you are familiar that, that Lauren and I, are uh, uh, we accepted a new church and we'll be going there um, after next Sunday. And so we're in a season of transition. We're in a season of change. Um, and that's not always fun. Um, but here's the funny thing about the Exodus story. Um, every year I read it, and every year, probably every other year I preach through it. And the Exodus story, it is the central narrative in the Old Testament. It, it, it is taking us from, li- from bondage to liberty. for today is, is that, you know, Stephanie did such a great job last Sunday of taking us through the Red Sea and, and describing what God was doing there uh, in, in, the, in the actual moment where the sea parted and the people of Israel walked through on dry ground. But there are 40 years in between the parting of the Red Sea and when the Israelites actually take possession of the Promised Land. And this period of time that they were in between the Red Sea and the Promised Land, it has a term. I don't know that it's a great term, but it's called the wilderness wanderings. And friend, as you think about what God wants to do in your life personally, on an individual level, and as you think about what God is doing on a corporate level in, in, in us as a church, to get where God wants us to go, to get to new expressions of grace, we have to go through the wilderness. the wilderness. The wilderness is not some aberration in the plan of God. The wilderness is not something that surprises God. Oh my goodness, I can't believe there's a wilderness between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. The wilderness is part of the plan. It's part of the process. And so it is important that we kind of lean into that story. And so we're going to kind of try as best we can to pull some lessons out from this season known as the wilderness wandering. Now, maybe you've seen this phrase on the back of someone's uh, vehicle, particularly if they drive a Jeep. I know there's some Jeep owners in the congregation. And I know people that, that buy Jeeps and customize Jeeps and have big tires. I know that that's like a community. That's like a uh, a demographic all in of, of its own, and and we like to um, we like to have these vehicles that can you know crash through creek beds and climb up the sides of mountains, and we flip it into four wheel drive low, and we go anywhere we want, and and so jeeps are fun. Um, but I was sitting in traffic the other day because I'm always sitting in traffic. Seems like. And uh, there was a Jeep in front of me, and there was a phrase on the back of the spare tire, had a, had a cover over it, and there was a phrase there that Jeep has made popular, 
And it said, not all who wander are lost. Does that get Jeep owners excited today? That's right. Just because I'm wandering around the Ozarks, it doesn't mean I'm lost. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I'm crashing through creek beds and I'm climbing up the sides of mountains. And not all who wander are lost. I want to say this uh, about the wilderness wandering. Do not think the Israelites are lost. Do not think that God is not in control. Do not think that God is not somehow in the midst orchestrating all that we read of in this moment in salvation history known as the wilderness wanderings. God is very much involved from the beginning, even before they crossed the Red Sea. Look at Exodus 13, verses 17 through 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. And so from the get-go, there is this very direct route from where the Israelites were in Egypt, near the, the delta of the Nile. Here they are. They had this chance to go this route along the Mediterranean. The problem is they were going through this strip of land. Today it's known as the Gaza Strip. But at the time it was occupied by this group of people known as the Philistines, the, the arch enemy of Israel. This is sort of the first time we're introduced to them. They're going to be a thorn in their side for about a thousand years. And so, yeah, God's not leading them by the Mediterranean. It's the short route. God chooses to take them on the southern route around the Sinai Peninsula. He does this because he is in the process of forming and shaping a people. And he's wanting them, he's wanting to take this group of slaves and shape them into a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The other thing to remember is not only was, was God taking them around the Philistines, and he's going to bring them in the, on the east side of the Jordan River eventually. Not only is he going around the Philistines, he's doing something else. He's with them. Look at verses 21 and 22. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to, get, to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So the Lord is with them. Yes, there's this short route. You could go by the way of the Mediterranean, but the pillar of fire and the cloud are leading the people this southern route around the Sinai Peninsula, and it's God who's doing it. These are images of God's sovereignty and his presence. And if you're a wanderer today, if you are on the precipice of something unknown, if you are about to step into something that brings you fear or anxiety, if you are afraid today, if you, are, if you know there is a wilderness ahead of you, an unexplored territory that you've never been before, I've got good news for wanderers today. That God is ahead of us, he's behind us, and he's around us in the wilderness. God is ahead of us, and he's behind us, and he is all around us in the wilderness. This is the good news of this text today that he goes with us into the wilderness. 
And so he can be trusted. But have you ever got bad advice? I mean, have you ever been on the, on the, on the brink of launching into some new adventure and you're pulling together people to give you advice and try to give you some direction and there's something in your gut that says, I don't know if I can trust what that person's saying. It reminds me of when Lauren and I were first married, like the day after we were married, we began our honeymoon and here was our plan. We wanted to drive through New England. We wanted to go up into the maritime provinces of Canada. We wanted a honeymoon in Prince Edward Island. And we thought it would be cool to drive together. Now, we didn't realize that most fights start when couples are driving somewhere. We didn't, we didn't realize that. And so if, if someone had been doing their, like, premarital counseling, they would have said, no, on your first day married together, do not be in a car 12 hours together. That's a bad idea. Um, but no, so that was our plan. And so the cheapest flight we could find in New England was Providence, Rhode Island. How many of you went on your honeymoon to Providence, Rhode Island? Raise your hand. It's, it's yeah, you, you just don't want to do that. Um, but it was a cheap flight, so we flew in there, we rented a car. And, you know, as we're planning this trip, I said, Lauren, we got to go through Boston. Look, the day after we get married, the Red Sox are playing a day game. We can, we can fly into Providence, we can go to Fenway Park, we can see the Red Sox play. This will be awesome. And Lauren didn't realize how much veto power she has in really all of things. But she, she was new at this wife thing, and she, she went along with it. She said, okay, let's go to a baseball game. And um, actually, she has indulged me all of our marriage. We've, anytime we can do these little side, side baseball games, um, I end up manipulating her in such a way that we make it happen. And um, <clears throat> so first day, we haven't been married 24 hours and the plan is going just perfect. Uh, we haven't even been married 24 hours, and here we are at Fenway Park watching the Red Sox play. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. It was awesome. We come back to the parking lot where our rental car is, and I ha we have a flat tire. The first test of our marriage. What's going to happen here? And uh, I was eager to show Lauren how handy I was with things, you know, mechanical like flat tires and stuff like that. And like a champ, I pop the trunk, I get the little donut out and I'm changing the tire. But of course you can't drive to Prince Edward Island on that little donut. So we're going to have to get to the airport. We're going to have to change out rental cars or get them to get us a new car. And, and friends, this was, this, this was back in the days before GPS, before you had, you know, a map on, on your phone. Uh, the Pony Express was still running east to west at that time, I believe. And I, I, I said, you know, I don't even know how to get to the airport from Fenway Pack, and we're going to have to go somewhere and ask for some directions. And so I did the old-fashioned thing. I went to a gas station, um, and uh, I walked in there, and um, in my best uh, southern accent, which is really the only way I know how to talk, I asked this person for directions to Logan International Airport. And and here were the directions they gave me. They said, uh, they said oh, you want to go to the airport? And, and I said, yeah. They said, well, you just want to go down this road a little bit. You're going to get to the 93. And yeah, when you get to the 93, just take the 93 and take your right to the airport. And I said, oh, okay, do I go north or do I go south on 93? Oh, it doesn't matter. Just take the 93. 
And I said, now look, I, I know you think I'm an idiot because of the way I talk. But, but even as a southerner, I know that it's important to know whether you're going north or south. That's going to make a difference. I'm telling you, just go this way. Get on the 93. If you reach the harbor, you've gone too far. I said, if I reach the harbor, I've gone too far. The harbor, and yeah, you've gone too far. I said, okay. Sure enough, if you look at the map from where we were at Fenway Park, you get to I-93, you can go north, and there's a bridge that'll take you to the airport. And when you know it, you can go south, and there's a bridge that'll take you to the airport. And I just, I want to say that person, they were right. They gave, they gave good directions. We eventually understood each other. Um, but I wasn't feeling really good about just north or south, it doesn't matter. That didn't feel real good to me. And friends, sometimes you are on the brink of, of stepping out into wilderness and you might be getting some advice. You might be getting a message that doesn't feel right. Maybe you're getting a message that can't be trusted. It's important for us in this moment, there's a phrase that we hear a lot in our world. And, and this phrase makes me uncomfortable. But I'll hear, I'll, I'll hear people say or I'll read things on social media and people will say something to the effect of, you know, you got to live your truth. Man, what's your truth? you got to live your truth. Makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't sound like good advice. Because here's, here's the thing about truth. Truth isn't, there is no my truth and your truth. There is just truth. If you drop something, gravity will pull it to the ground. That's a truth. The sky is a certain color. We call it blue. That is a truth. And just because you say it's a different color or just you, because you say gravity won't work, it doesn't mean you've overridden these things that we know to be true. And as people of faith, as, as people of God, we come to God's word. And in God's word, we see this vision for what it looks like to live. And it's not my truth, and it's not your truth, and it's not some theologian's truth. It's God's truth. It's revealed to us. And, and, and God is much more specific than just saying, go north, go south, go east, it doesn't matter. It's your truth, it's somebody else's truth. Whatever your truth is, live it out. No, God is saying, I'm going to go before you in a, in, a in a fire. I'm going to go before you in a cloud. And your responsibility is to follow me. And following me, the southern route, even though it's circuitous and even though it's not the short route, is what you're called to do because I can be, be trusted. And so here's the Israelites. They're going to have this temptation. Do I live out my truth? Do I live out my truth that I learned in Egypt? Or do I embrace God's truth? And the wilderness is going to put that to the test in lots of different ways. So right after this amazing worship service where the, the, the sea crashes down on Pharaoh's army and Miriam picks up a tambourine and she begins to lead the people in singing, praise to the Lord, he's triumphed mightily, the horse and its rider, he's thrown into the sea and everyone says amen and they sing together. Like the next story, 
is the people of Israel, there's conservative estimates say there's 600,000 of them, and they're there in the wilderness, and wouldn't you know it, they run out of food. They run out of food, they don't have anything to eat, and they begin to grumble, and they begin to complain. And look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, we read this, that in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you've led us out here into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. How short their memory, right? How short the memory of the Israelites. What has God done up to that point? He sent a series of 10 plagues that demonstrated his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. He crashed the waters in on the greatest army in the history of the world at that time. He demonstrated his ability. He demonstrated his faithfulness time and time again. And the first moment that they faced adversity, they forgot all that. And they also had a very poor memory of Egypt. They did not sit around pots of meat. They were lucky to get some rice that they could rub together and make a cake. They lived in slave ghettos and slave quarters, and they ate only what Pharaoh said they could eat. They did not eat pots of meat. But what does God do in his compassion and his love? After grumbling and complaining, they wake up one morning, and the Lord has covered the desert floor with this white, flaky substance. They're not even sure what it is, but they know that it smells pretty good, tastes kind of sweet, and you can rub it together and you can knead it into dough and you can eat it and it's good. They didn't even know what it was called. And so we call it manna, which is the Hebrew word for just what is it? What is it? We don't even know what this is. It's, you might say it's wonder bread. We don't know what it is. What is this stuff? But we can rub it together and it's good. And so God's provided for the people. But it wasn't too long. They said, you know, Man does not live on bread alone. It'd be great if we had some protein with this. So they begin to grumble and complain, and the Lord in his compassion and his grace sends this migration of quail through the desert, and they're able to harvest the quail and prepare the quail, and, and God provides for them again. And, and here were the rules. Okay, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. and I'm going to provide for you. But don't hoard it. If you hoard it, if you take too much, it's going to spoil, it's going to go bad. Honor the Sabbath day. Go out the day before, take only what you need for two days provision. I'll keep it good through the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath and don't hoard it from other people. See, it was all, it was God shaping them and forming. Resources are scarce for When you know it, there's no water. It's kind of a big deal. You need water. And so they grumbled and they complained. And isn't it interesting that at this point in the story, the plagues, God demonstrated his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea, they crossed on dry ground. The defeat of Pharaoh's army. The provision of manna. The provision of quail. Time and time and time again, all of this evidence to say God's going to provide for us. And did anyone think, well, why don't we pray? Why don't we ask the Lord? Why don't we depend upon Him? The first, the first tendency that they had was to complain and to grumble and to argue. 
But God, again, he provided for him. Moses takes his staff, he strikes the rock, and a spring is discovered. And they drink fresh water there in the desert. And look at verse 7 of chapter 17. And Moses called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Those two Hebrew words, Massa and Meribah. It means testing and quarreling. Let's go to the testing and quarreling springs and have some water. I think, you know, uh, Park Springs sounds better. Buffalo Springs sounds better. Cold Springs sounds better. Uh, Even Hot Springs sounds okay. Uh, But quarreling and testing springs. Let's go there and let's get some water. But they named it that, Moses is saying to the people, they named it that because the the Israelite community, they were going to have to settle something. Is the Lord with us or is he not? Is the Lord with us or is he not? And as we progress through this wilderness, as we progress in this season of unknown, we're going to have to settle that question once and for all. And friends, here's the good news of whatever wilderness is ahead of you. These stories demonstrate that God does not lead us where he does not also provide. God does not lead us where he does not also provide. He will always provide for us. So as they leave testing and quarreling springs, (laughs) that's just uh, good luck chamber of commerce trying to, to build a marketing package with that. Welcome to Testing and Quarreling Springs. So as they leave Testing and Quarreling Springs, they, they, they go to this other, uh, other place and they camp. And Moses is now charged with administrating all of the things that have to be administered and making judgments. And, and his father-in-law comes and visits him one day and sees, man, 600,000 people are waiting in line to see Moses. And this is not good. This is, this is something, something's got to... So, so something's got to give. And so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he has a confrontation with him. And, and it's a lengthy passage, but I want us to read it because there's a lesson here. Verse 17 of chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law replied to Moses, Hey man, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me. And I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and his instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves, that will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses is trying to figure out, he's going to have to figure out a better system. He's going to have to figure out a way to keep this community moving forward and keep them going in the right direction and adjudicating all the things and all the issues and all the problems that they have. And Jethro's advice is so sound here. 
He's saying to Moses, okay, you are the representative of the people to God and God to the people. And so your primary objective is to point to God and to show who God is and how we're supposed to live. And and not too long after this, we're going to get Ten Commandments. Moses is going to deliver that to the people. He's going to say, these are the principles. This is the governing document. This is who we are. This is who we're supposed to be. We're not slaves anymore. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation. Here are the principles of how to live. But Moses could not make a judgment on every issue that came up before the people. The work was going to have to be shared. Other people were going to have to be empowered to take leadership in the community based on these 10 principles and based on the law that God is going to deliver. And something real key happens here. What Jethro said, it could have all been for naught had this next thing not happened. And I don't want us to underestimate it. So Jethro confronts Moses. Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. Jethro offers criticism He also offers a helpful solution. And look what happens next, something that hardly ever happens in our culture, in our context. Look at verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law. How many of you listen to your in-laws? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Now, here the wisdom of Moses is on full display. He recognizes, okay, you're right. I can't do it all. We can't become the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God wants us to be. He listens to Jethro, and he empowers other people to do the work. And friend, that model is repeated in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says the Spirit has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be teachers, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds. These are gifts that are given to the church. And I'm telling you, God has a person appointed to be the leader of this church. God has a person appointed. God is even now stirring something in their heart. But it will not, the the, the future success of this church will not be the result of one person's efforts. It will be because we as a people, we as a community, come around them and discern together what God is doing And we're going to put our hand to the plow and we're going to work together to see God's mission accomplished. So know this, Jethro teaches Moses this, Moses teaches it to the people, Paul teaches it to the churches, that the mission of God is not accomplished by the efforts of one person, but by a community of people willing to trust God in the same direction. It's not about one person. It's about a community of people coming together and saying, let's discern together what the Spirit is saying and how we have been gifted for the work of ministry. My favorite pastoral theologian is a guy named Eugene Peterson. He passed away about three years ago. But he had a a phrase that he repeated in his writings. He said, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. And friends, that's who we're called to be as a church as we all exercise our gifts. A long obedience in the same direction. Let's pull together in the same direction. Let's discern together what the Spirit is saying and let's follow him into this unknown future. So Moses listens and it makes a difference. Here's how the book of Exodus ends. We do get the Ten Commandments and that's a pretty amazing 
uh, scene in and of itself. After the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 25, from Exodus 25 to almost the end of the book, about Exodus 35, we have this detailed instruction of what the tent of meeting is supposed to look like. Man, if you're doing a read-through-the-Bible plan, I know some of you have done that, this is your first challenge. You've, go, you've gone through Genesis, and it's awesome. You've gone through Exodus, man. You've, you've heard about the Red Sea. You're reading about the wilderness. You've hit your first challenge. Like, can you power through all of the instructions about the poles are supposed to be this long that carries the Ark of the Covenant and the seal of the Ark of the Covenant has this angel on it and here's what you put in the Ark of the Covenant and here are the people who are authorized to carry the Ark of the Covenant and this is how wide the tent of meeting should be. This is how high it should be. This is the kind of gold that you use. This is the incense that you burn. On and on and on and on and on and on. Exodus 25 through 35. This elaborate instruction about this place where you know that cloud that was, gad, that was leading the people, that cloud will settle down on that tent of meeting, represent, representing the presence of God. There the priest will go. The priest will offer the sacrifices. The priest will make atonement for the people. And it's, it's just a detailed account of what that is supposed to be like. And here's what God is doing there. And here's why we need to read it. And here's why we need to understand why it's in our Bible. Because God, this holy God, this holy God desires intimate fellowship and relationship with his people. And he needs his people to understand that I am holy. I am holy. And because I am holy, I'm calling you to be holy. And so this tent of meeting with all of this elaborate instruction for what it's supposed to be, it's a means of grace. It's a symbol of God's holiness. And it is an invitation to participate and experience the holiness of God. There's this one description of Joshua, the, the servant of Moses. And it says, Joshua never left the tent of meeting. Joshua stayed near the tent of meeting. He wanted to be, if God's presence were gonna, was going to break, break in, if the cloud was going to come to the tent of meeting, he wanted to be there. And friends, the reason I mention that is it's the third lesson we need to learn from the wilderness today. And that is that intimacy with God cannot be sacrificed for the mission of God. There are things for you to do. There's something God's called you to do. But intimacy with God comes first. Intimacy with God cannot be sacrificed for anything else. That's why God gives this elaborate instruction for what the tent of meeting is supposed to be. And maybe you've got a good ministry objective. Maybe you've got a good vision for what you want your ministry to do or what you want to accomplish. But if you are not spending time with God, if you are not experiencing intimacy with God, those projects will fail. Those projects will fall flat if not sustained by the life of God who desires to meet with you and who desires for you to experience more and more of his presence. And so here are some things that we learn in the wilderness. I want to tell you something about your Jeep. Um, and, and maybe you have 
that phrase on your Jeep that not all who wander are lost? I want to tell you something about that. It's really cool. And Jeep's done a really good job of making commercials about it. But in case you didn't know, Jeep did not invent that phrase. They actually stole it. They stole it from a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote a novel called The Lord of the Rings. And that phrase appears in a portion of that novel. And I think if I'll put that phrase in its full context, it's going to help us with our wilderness. Here's what Tolkien writes as he's describing life in Middle Earth and the, the calling that now was coming to those commissioned to take the ring to Mordor. He says this, All that is gold does not always glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. I'm going to read it again because it, it took me a while to really capture what Tolkien was saying. So let me read it again for us. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. It's true that not all who wander are lost. What, what Tolkien is, is wanting people to see is that the question is not, will you wander? The question is not, will you be in a season of unknown? Will you, will you be in a situation similar to the wilderness? Will you be in a situation where you don't know what the next answer is or, or you don't have an easy answer for what comes next? Tolkien is saying you absolutely will be there. The question is not will you wander. The question is how will you wander? Will you wander in such a way that your roots go deep? Will you wander in such a way that your roots are so deep and they're so connected to the life of God that they are not scared of the frost? That they, they, they continue to receive nourishment and life from God because they're so deep and they're so planted that even when frost covers the surface, their roots are so deep in your wandering. Will you be refined in such a way that your heart is made like pure gold? And not all gold glitters. We want it to glitter on the outside. We want the accolades. We want people to recognize what's happening. But some of the purest gold doesn't always glitter. Are you connected to that old story? That old, deep story of what God is doing in Christ. This story that sustains and keeps us. It doesn't wither. It doesn't fade. The mercies of God are, are new every morning. And so in your wandering, may your heart be refined like gold. May your roots go deep and may you be connected to the story of God. May you not trust in your truth or culture's truth or some other crazy person on social media's truth. May you trust in the truth of God's word. May this anchor you and sustain you. And who's our example in this? It's Jesus. Jesus goes into the 
wilderness. And what happens when Jesus goes into the wilderness? He encounters Satan. And Satan tempts him. He wants Jesus to quarrel, and he wants Jesus to test God, and he wants Jesus to do all kinds of things that are outside of who Jesus is and and what he had been called to do. What Satan didn't realize, but what he would soon learn, is those roots were deep. That Jesus was anchored to the life of his Father. What Satan would learn is that Jesus had a heart refined like gold. Jesus was connected to this mission and this story that God was writing through his obedience. And just as the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness, the Spirit leads us to the wilderness. It's intentional and it's purposeful. And there we learn a dependence upon the Lord that we've never known before. And we learn to walk with the Lord in a way that we never knew before. And it's the wilderness that prepares us for our ultimate mission. What was Jesus' ultimate mission? It was to share good news with the lost, with the hurting, with the broken. This is what it means to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so what I would say to you this morning, church, is is welcome to the wilderness. It's a good place. It's a good place because God is here. God God is here with you in the wilderness. He's preparing you for his mission. He's preparing you to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's preparing you like Jesus to share good news with the lost, with the hurting, and with the broken.